Karen and I were watching uh, America's Got Talent, one of the most family-friendly TV shows there is these days, and uh, a comedian came on to do his act, and so Simon asked him, who's here with you? And he said, uh, my partners. And Simon said, partners? And the contestant said, well, my wife and I have been married for nine years, and the camera then panned over and showed her sitting in the audience. And then he said, and then about four years ago, we met our partner, Katie. And they showed Katie sitting next to the wife there in the audience. And everybody clapped and smiled and cheered. And I, I was trying to take this in. I was like, okay, so you wanted to commit adultery and your spouse wanted to commit adultery so you conspired so you could enter a relationship kind of like bigamy but different. And I was like, Toto, I've got a feeling. We're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> you know, uh, the late, great Eugene Peterson told us very clearly. He said, friends, you are living in exile. Get used to it. But that's hard to get used to, isn't it? How do we live in a time and a place where so many people seem to have lost a sense of basic respect for other human beings, a sense of commitment, uh, really a, a sense of, of human dignity. And Christians are not exactly like a welcome voice in the cultural conversation. We are out on the margins. Of course, as Bishop Todd says, there is no central voice anymore. We've lost the center. But uh, that's small comfort. And honestly, when many people look at us, they either shrug their shoulders or spit. And my guess is, it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. Not a prophet, just guessing. So, we need help. We need to learn. We've got to figure out how are we going to live and survive and even thrive within a pagan culture. And Jeremiah, a prophet inspired by God, whose words have stood the test of time, teaches us how to do exactly that. He gives us a way of looking at it. And tonight I'm going to draw out three principles for how we can live in a culture as decadent and violent as our own is. And weren't we all horrified by the violence this week? I do think that this topic is one of the more important ones for believers today. But I also think that Jeremiah's take on it is not resoundingly embraced because it will go against our emotions and it'll go against our expectations. But let's look at it together. If you would there, Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people, Nebuchadnezzar, who, by the way, was the dictator of Babylon, had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then in verse 2, he names some of them, uh, the king, Jehoiachin, the queen mother, court officials, the leaders, the skilled workers, the artisans. The group actually also included the prophet Ezekiel. 
And this is a huge brain drain. The invading enemy army from Babylon kidnaps what we would say today were your executives and your professors and your software developers and your tradespeople and anybody who can help back home with rare and particular skills. Well, uh, they all get force-marched force a thousand miles. It's like us going from, say, Chicago to Denver. Takes four to five months. And they land in a little settlement near Baghdad that is called, get this, Judea Town. I know, it's like basically Jewville. And many become sharecroppers. What the Babylonian government does is they say, we will give you land to work, we'll rent it to you. And your rent is like a third of your crop, something like that. So essentially they're sharecroppers. And I, I tried to imagine this week, like what a shock and adjustment to find yourself in exile, in such a strange place that you never <laughs> imagined you'd be. I mean, like back home in Jerusalem, there's plenty of wine, right? Grapes grow famously in that Mediterranean climate. But over here, the Babylonians don't drink wine, so they just have like warm barley beer. Blech. You know, and you're just waiting for a good cup of wine, and it's not coming. And I'm thinking these exiles have to be looking around and feeling like, you are my enemy. I hate you. I hate your, your clothing. I hate your food. I hate your language. I hate your arrogance. I hate your love of violence. I, and now I really hate that you credit all of your military success to your gods like Marduk with his dragon and Nergal, which was an evil god who inflicts disease and war and death. And when you build your huge ziggurats and temples to your gods, I know where you got the money. You extorted it from us. So stuck here in this utterly pagan culture, God's people are traumatized. They're disoriented. And so they turn to their leaders to try to help them make sense of what is going on. And those leaders are saying, apparently, resist everything about this hateful place because God's going to bring it down, and in no time, we're all going home. And this is still actually a popular way to handle the emotional dissonance of living as a Christian in a culture that is not friendly to that. Famous preacher D.L. Moody, who, who, great guy, by the way, but he used to say, this world's a sinking ship, and God's given me a lifeboat to get off as many people as I can. Now, if you view, view the world as a sinking ship, like the Titanic, say, that is about to go sink down to the icy bottom, how likely are you to invest time and money in repairing the ship? None. You're going to get off that thing as quick as you can and find a lifeboat, right? So uh, this view is still popular in many parts of the church today, and it's what our emotions long for. We really want relief from this constant sense of being among people who don't get us, who, who look down on us. And Jeremiah, though, takes a different approach. He brings a word from the Lord that goes against our natural emotions. Verse 5, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, don't let the, I'm sorry, that's 8, don't let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Don't listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They're prophesying lies to you in my name. I've not sent them. And instead, Jeremiah says, here's what the Lord's actually saying. And in these very first words from God, we get a first principle for living in exile. 
verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, wait, wait, wait. Who carried them into exile? Wasn't it the hated armies of the Babylonian dictator Nebuchadnezzar who force-marched them? But God says, I carried you there. Above and beyond what any dictator did, God was at work. God was at work, as he'd said so often, he was going to be, through Jeremiah, to shock his people, to get their attention, to stop their idolatry and injustice and restore them to himself. This is God's doing. I carried you into exile. Now, this is a challenging principle, is it not, <laughs> to try to take in as, as we live in a pagan culture. But I take it as this. See God at work. See God at work above and beyond and yet somehow working through our painful sense of displacement. He's still at work. He's got us here for a reason. I notice the missionary Paul, many years later, does this same kind of thinking. When his pagan Roman culture uh, arrests him for preaching the gospel, puts him in jail, he never says, I'm in Emperor Nero's prison, or I'm a prisoner of the empire. He says, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I'm a prisoner for the Lord. The Lord is in this thing. He's in it and above it. Now, what would happen, friends, if we here in America saw our current situation, which is a rapidly developing minority status, if we're not all there already, and increasing powerlessness as something God is nonetheless at work in for a greater good, our greater good. For could it be maybe, I'm just thinking out loud here, we, especially in the white American church, who've been used to cultural acceptance and power. Now we are in a space that will humble us. And we will have to sit down and listen, for example, to the black church and to the global church who have figured out how to live on the margins and have done it for generations. So principle number one is to see God at work. It's not pleasant. It's not hard, but he's still at work even here. Well, if that one goes against our emotions, the next principle goes against our expectations. Verse five, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce. Marry, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage so that they can have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. To people who don't want to be there one more day, Jeremiah is saying, invest for the long term. Make expensive long-term commitments and investments. Put in a garden, though you're going to wait months to, to really see it come up, am I right, Randy Cathcart? All right. <laughs> Build a house, though it's going to take you years to get that thing paid off. Raise kids, even though, as any parent knows, you don't see the results for a long, long time. <laughs> yeah, Jeremiah says to God's people who don't want to be there, build a house, plant a garden, have kids, invest in the long term. Now, I have to say, as hard as that counsel from Jeremiah, from the Lord through Jeremiah is, 
whenever Christians have not done this, it has not gone well. In 1832, in New York State, there was a Baptist lay preacher named William Miller, no relation, I hope, who had been studying the book of Daniel, and based on that, he calculated this way, that Jesus would return to earth, quote, sometime between March 21st, 1843, and March 21st of 1844. Well, those dates came and went. So Miller and his followers went back and said, oh, yeah, okay, our bad, and came up with a new date, October 22nd, that same year, 1844. I'm sorry, yeah, that fall. And can you guess what happened on that day? We actually know, because one guy who lived through it writes this, I waited all Tuesday, and dear Jesus did not come. I waited all the forenoon of Wednesday, but after 12 o'clock, I began to feel faint. And before dark, I needed someone to help me up to my chamber as my natural strength was leaving me very fast, and I lay prostrate for two days, sick with disappointment. Too bad for the Christians who had left their jobs. And to avoid all that kind of mess, Jeremiah says, invest in the long term. You're going to be in Babylon for a while. And in fact, he actually tells them, it's in this specific case, 70 years. So build a house. Plant a garden. Settle down. I wonder, is God nudging you to do something and you've been holding back just because conditions are so frightening? The politics are so divisive. The economy is so uncertain. You know, during the first days of the COVID pandemic, when people were wiping down groceries, remember that? Okay. <laughs> and we were all living in lockdown and fear. Sandy Richter and others from Savior started a church. I'm so glad they did. We need that church. So we, we have this principle to invest for the long term. See God at work, invest for the long term. And here's number three. Seek the peace and the prosperity of where you live. Now this also, I think, cuts against our grain. Wouldn't God, who hates the arrogance and the violence of the Babylonians, he makes that very clear in scripture, and by the way, their time is coming, okay? Wouldn't he want us to do anything we could to subvert this place and try to undercut it and basically destroy it. Help bring it down. But that is not the word that the Lord speaks to Jeremiah here. Verse 7, Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. And here's why. Because if it prospers, you'll prosper. Seek the peace of Babylon. Wow. We're wrestling with this right now in the Christian conversation. Five years ago, a major book called The Benedict Option came out. Maybe some of you read that or read reviews of that. In it, Rod Dreher argues that we American churchgoers are losing our religious liberty, we're losing our young people, and we're losing our souls, which is not a hard case to make. Okay. And so he proposes that we go back and we do what St. Benedict did back in the 500s when the Roman Empire had completely come apart at the seams and Europe had been overrun by the barbarians. And basically what Benedict did was he formed these small monastic communities. And they would work and pray. And, and, uh, and Dreher says, that's the only way forward I see. Well, that may be 
But what Jeremiah is calling here for is a different option. I think it's more what Professor Alan Jacobs, who used to teach over at Wheaton, calls the Gandalf option. Okay. In The Lord of the Rings, Gandalf tells uh, Denethor, I'm not here to rule. I am here to try to nourish and to care for all the good things that I find in this world. To nourish and to care for all the good things that I find in this world. And Alan Jacobs warns, we can get so caught up in fighting against all the things we believe to be wicked and destructive that we fail to water the gardens that will produce the fruit for our children and our grandchildren. Now, did God's people listen to Jeremiah? Did they seek the peace and the prosperity of where they were living, of that pagan place where there is this tiny minority in, in, in Judea town? Well, until seven years ago, scholars didn't know for sure, but that year they discovered 100 clay tablets from this time place. And they're all like the size of my hand or smaller, actually. And in tiny Akkadian script, you can read like promissory notes because they took out loans, marriage agreements, business partnerships, leasing of land agreements, buying and selling of animals. And because these exiles took the advice sent by Jeremiah, they flourished. The prophet Ezekiel finished his book in exile. One of the more amazing books in the Bible, by the way. And the Jewish community ultimately developed the Talmud there, which has been central to Jewish life and thought ever since. So principle number three is seek the peace and prosperity of where you live because if it prospers, you'll prosper. So keep doing, friends, what's in front of you. Keep trying to contribute. Help out with your HOA. Invite somebody over for dinner. Do whatever those things are that God's given you to do. Keep trying to create. You know, one person who's really inspired me over the years in this way is Cicely Saunders, uh, a British nurse and social worker, and then later she went back and trained to be a doctor. And what she discovered in, in her own culture in 1950s England is that hospitals had absolutely no idea what to do with somebody once you were dying. The doctors would tell the family, there's nothing more we can do. And basically, that person would be left in the corner to die. And Cicely Saunders, who had become an Anglican Christian, refused to accept that. So she spent seven years researching pain control and working among the dying. And she began dreaming of a place that would serve cancer patients that was unlike anything she had seen. But she was afraid of stepping out and asking for financing for her dream because there wasn't anything like this. It would be the world's first purpose-built hospice. But one day she was reading Psalm 37. <coughs> Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. So, in 1961, Cicely Saunders opened St. <coughs> Christopher's in London. You know, she'd actually thought about forming an Anglican religious community. And instead, what she decided to do is create St. Christopher's, a place that explicitly welcomed staff and patients of any faith or no faith. Do you see how she was seeking the peace and the prosperity of the place that God had put her? And it was at St. Christopher's where they did pioneering research on using morphine for pain control. 
We take morphine for granted. That had to all be worked out, and most of it was researched at St. Christopher's. And unlike hospitals, in her hospice, you could garden. You could get your hair done. You could go to music therapy and drama therapy, and you could do artwork because Sicily believed, quote, you matter because you are you. You matter to the last moment of your life. Isn't that beautiful? And her work actually created a new specialty called palliative care. It didn't exist before her. And when euthanasia began growing in Europe, she strongly opposed it for two reasons. One, her Christian faith, and two, she had shown that pain control is possible. In 2005, Cicely Saunders died of breast cancer at the hospice she had built. In a, she lived in a culture that viewed a dying patient as a medical failure. And she taught the world how you can view that same patient as a whole person. Friends, we all live in a pagan culture, and there will be times when what God asks of us will go against our emotions and our expectations. But if we are willing to see God at work, if we're willing to invest for the long term, if we're willing to seek the prosperity of even here, then God has a great promise. One of the most beautiful in Jeremiah. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future.